Our average client has about two and a half, two to five time, two to five million, sorry, in negotiable revenue. And in the first year, we make them usually about $600,000 more. And then we get them um, rate increases for beyond, like hopefully year two and year three as well. So there's a lot of money. Welcome everyone to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Primary Care Podcast. I am releasing this just right around match day 2020, so I'm wishing all of you knuckleheads going through the process good luck, and I'm wishing myself good luck as well, but I'm not a knucklehead, so then it has to be two different wishes. I was really excited about this episode for a while. This one is about the business of medicine, billing, coding, and maybe most importantly, negotiating contracts with payers. I'll introduce my guest and a little bit more about the topic in a minute. First, I want to introduce our new sponsor and a fitting one for this episode. Welcome to our sponsor, the Business Insultants at businessinsultants.com. Do you have low self-esteem? No self-esteem? Negative self-esteem? Are you in the market for a business consultant in your line of work? Well, look no further than the business insultants. The only business consultants who come directly to your place of work give you expert financial and business advice, all while dropping in rude and insulting comments about your shortcomings and features of your personality that you are most self-conscious about. They are a monthly subscription service that reviews taxes, business plans, and balances your books. And here's the best part, you can cancel at any time, you cheap son of a gun. So, go to businessinsultants.com and click on Benjamin Franklin's crying face icon at the bottom left of the screen and enter the code PCP for 0.025% off your initial consult. That's businessinsultants.com, businessinsultants.com. All right, thanks to our new sponsor and on to the episode. My guest this month is Marsha Brockler. She is the founder and owner of Physicians Ally, where she advises physicians and practice administrators on negotiating managed care contracts, reimbursement, compliance, billing, and coding. She's a published author and a nationally recognized speaker on these topics and more. And speaking with her, I was really blown away by how much physicians need her services and how little medical professionals are taught about these real world things in medical school and probably beyond. So I sat down with her at her office in Littleton, Colorado. We talked mostly about a few main big topics of her career and her world. We talked about contract negotiation with insurance companies and how much she and her company optimize the reimbursement and revenue of a practice. 
We also talked about the world of billing, coding, and compliance. All of which are really interesting little worlds that impact impact uh, providers' lives quite a bit. So I think it's a super important episode for me because learning about this world and the basics of how it works early on in my medical career, I think is going to be super valuable. Um, quick note, she also wanted me to clarify something that we talked about on the recording. Uh, we were talking about the topic of people who market themselves as billing experts, but they are not not billing experts because they can't even answer simple questions about the profession, such as how much does Medicare reimburse for a basic office visit at 99213 code? Well, then I asked her, okay, how much is it? And she said that she didn't really actually know specifically off the top of her head, but probably around $75 to $90. But she said that's not the point. The point is that she knows how to find it out and can look it up in like a minute. Uh, well, so after the recording ended, she was told me she was going to go look, look it up, and I said, okay, I'll time you. And then in less than 30 seconds, she had an answer and wrote it down on a post-it note for me, so that was awesome. She's uh, the real deal. Uh, by the way, Colorado Medicare pays $93.30 for this type of visit, so there you go. Anywho... I am going to link to her website, physicians-ally.com, physicians, plural, dash, ally, A-L-L-Y.com. Uh, I'll link to that in the show notes, as well as put a link to a webinar that she has done on some of the topics that we discussed today and, and more as well. I also have some materials that her team sent over um, some self-assessment toolkits for HIPAA and OSHA compliance, as well as some information on products that she sells uh, pretty affordably for uh, physicians in, in the market for um, understanding this world a little bit more. And uh, and you can reach out to me at theprimarycarepodcast at gmail.com if you're interested in uh, getting those forwarded your way. All right. Overall, she is in the business of helping doctors run their business and thus Physicians Ally. I think it's a great name. So I hope you learned something from all the knowledge that she drops. I know I did. Let us please welcome Marsha Brockler. I'm Marcia Brockler. I grew up in the 70s in Southern California, daughter of a solo practice radiation oncologist. Oh, cool. And uh, my mom ultimately became a financial planner. So I feel like I got into this line of work genetically with like half clinical, half administrative. Yeah, it sounds like your career is a blend of those two it's things. <laughs> my older brother, 11 months older, and then I'm a twin. So oh, you okay. can imagine, well, you probably can't imagine what my mom's life was like, but, uh, he's the physician in like, you know how physicians skip or do, they don't skip generations. They, they come generationally. Right. So he got all that and he's a pediatric intensivist now for one of the banner hospitals in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I do this and my sister's in, uh, education. Okay, great. Well, um, so what kind of training went into... Actually, first, let's uh, kind of just establish what this is. You said... Yes. Uh, so tell us about 
kind of what you do and what your uh, your business is. So my business is called Physicians Ally, and it's located in Littleton, Colorado. But we have only about 30% of our physician practice clients are in Colorado. We work everywhere in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, we negotiate insurance contracts on behalf of physicians against insurance companies to try and get the physicians paid what they're worth. Okay. And I've been doing that since 1999. So this is our 23rd year of doing that. And I'm self-employed. And I have a staff of about 25 people. Wow. Okay. And it just started uh, with you, you said, in your kitchen earlier, just uh, in the, you know, 25 years ago, just um, started very grassroots, sounds like. Very grassroots. I realized my undergrad was in health administration, Mm -hmm. Chapel Hill, and my grad was in uh, public health, but health policy and management and Mm -hmm. administration were the focus, not like epidemiology or statistics or anything. Right. And... Most people who go through those programs want to become hospital administrators, but I realized most hospital administrators at the time were like white, male, and there was only one at every hospital. Right. And on each hospital campus, there were 300 or 500 multi-million dollar operations that were the hardworking, independent physician practices. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them still have like Mary at the front desk running the practice. Yeah. So I figured I could use very few of them have somebody with like a master's degree Mm -hmm. that are helping run the practice. Okay. So I could do that in a job, one job, one practice, which I thought would be not very challenging, but if I could help, you know, hundreds of practices specifically focused on generating more revenue, that's my passion. Yeah. Not, you know, that Mary called in sick or the phone system went down, or all those administrative operational things that tend to tie up the Mm -hmm. practice administrator, if I could just focus on revenue, I had to do that myself as Mm -hmm. a self-employed person because there's no job just to do that at a doctor's office. Yeah, so you're kind of an independent contractor consultant. Is that how you think of yourself? Yes, exactly. Cool. Mm-hmm. And and Physicians Ally is a great name for the business because that's exactly what it sounds like you are, is helping them uh, generate more money for their small business or for their maybe, uh, you know, practice within a bigger business. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, we don't advertise. We never have marketed. Mm-hmm. It's all word of mouth. Yeah. And I still have the same clients that I opened my doors with in 1999. So we're kind of a little hidden secret. There's not a doctor's office that I found that couldn't use us. Right. Um, so there's a lot of doctor's offices. And focusing on increasing their revenue is not usually on their radar. Mm-hmm. So we get, we're slammed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors are, are, uh, so, uh, you know, in the weeds with all the, the clinical stuff that they need to do and all the other administrative stuff that they need to do, that's, I imagine some of them just kind of have a blind spot to the business side of medicine, even though they, you know, might enjoy some more revenue coming in mm-hmm. and enjoy, uh, you know, just a more profit margin and everything like that. But um, it's not something that they were trained in. Actually, before no. the, we heated up the mics here today, we were talking about uh, some of your passion for that early education in in that way, um, teaching physicians or pre-med 
uh, students things along the lines of the business of medicine or how coding, billing, insurance works. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, sure, yeah. That, that aspect of so this uh, is education. What I love about you and physicians in general is you honestly, I think, don't go. If you go in it for the money, you'd you'd have, you know, washed out. Right. Because what you've done so far is basically free care. Mm-hmm. And when you get out into the practice, you don't you haven't gotten an MBA, you haven't taken an accounting class, mm-hmm. and yet you're supposed to be wealthy, independent business people right. with no training. So that's our clientele is people who realize, uh oh, like I don't know how to do this. Um, and then we help them. So first we focus on the money and then uh there's other things we do, like medical billing and things we can talk about, other services sure. we have that we realize they need, but we don't want to hit them up with any expense until we've more than paid for our, you know, place in their in their practice, mm-hmm. or, you know, our role in their lives. Yeah, so my undergrad thesis that I had to write, like, to get, you know, to graduate with, like, honors from that program was... Um, uh, physician medical training and its implications on the public's health. Cause my degree was in public health yeah. in public health. Right, so right. what I learned, and I think it's still true today is that medical training and I, the 1910 like Flexner report mm-hmm. was basically how if curriculum at medical schools met that minimum standard, then they could be a medical school that could give somebody a medical degree. Right. And that was like 1910. And the curriculum has pretty much stayed the same. Yeah. And it doesn't include any of the business of medicine. Right. And back then there probably wasn't that much of a need for a doctor to be savvy with, Mm -mm. with money or, uh, or any, any aspect of business at all. Um, but obviously times have changed quite a bit since 1910 and increasingly, that's a huge part of doctors' lives. Yeah, and training hasn't changed. And every time I appeal to like a program that trains physicians, you know, they do a brown bag lunch. You know, they might have a doctor, a practicing doctor come in and do a brown bag lunch for an hour, maybe even once a month and talk about how to run a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very ad hoc and not, I mean, that's that, if anything, that's, a teeny tiny Band-Aid. Right. It's not true education no. on the matter. It's definitely not uh, what, what anyone would call training on the matter. Um, but Is that so, your experience? Like, have you been at a brown bag lunch learning how to run a practice? Um, if that, you know, yeah. I, I really haven't. Uh, I, I would say I'm under-trained in that entire area. Not that I haven't tried to figure things out, like some, you know, some aspects of economics, microeconomics, or even macro and how the whole system works on my own, or, you know, some things just come to you, um, through media, whether it be, you know, podcasts that I seek out on, in, you know, on the topic of economics within healthcare or just, you know, however else it comes to me, but in, in no, in, in very, minimal aspect of the curriculum have I uh, actually experienced the business of medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that's just about true for just about everybody who goes through medical school is unless you've got an MBA during medical school, which actually my cousin did. So it's, it's not like it's, 
impossible or unheard of. Um, but you know, that's negligible in terms of the uh, actual physician workforce who actually knows yep. uh, th that much of a background in, uh, in economics or, or business. And what does your cousin do? Uh, he just started his emergency medicine residency. Oh, okay. So he, he did like a combined MBA and uh, MD program. Well, good, because I would say, in, in my experience, a lot of the people who do the combined, you know, maybe go into hospital administration or, you know, running a program, they're not actually doing clinical because they've got the business side of it. Mm -hmm. So it's rare and awesome that somebody would have an MD and an MBA and still choose to do the MD. Yeah, well, I mean, who knows what will happen after mm -hmm. residency. He's going to go through residency first anyway. So uh, I guess we'll we'll update you on that in about four years. So. Yeah, good. Good luck <laughs> um, to him. Yeah. Uh, so let's kind of get into kind of the nuts and bolts of what you do on a daily basis and how you work with physicians. Um, so far, we've mentioned the topics of billing, coding, at least I think the words have come up. You also kind of talked about when I asked you what you did for a living, you said you basically consult with physicians and negotiate contracts yeah. um, with them with insurance companies and maybe um, some other entities as well. Um, what's a day like for you and kind of if we can talk about it within the context of uh, those topics that I was just talking about, billing, coding, yeah. negotiating contracts and, and compliance or however you think about it and talk about it. Yeah, no worries. Um, so a typical day we have – in any given month, we have about 50 or 60 clients that are in active negotiations against insurance companies. Uh, what we do is uh, baseline, like understand the specialty, the geographic location, their current, frankly, how bad their current contracts are. Mm -hmm. um, I would say most of our practices and clients that come to us are probably operating off of at least 10-year-old contracts with the big payers. There's like five big payers, mm -hmm. Aetna, Blue Cross, Cigna, Humana, United. Those are the negotiable payers. They also have non-negotiable government payers like Medicare, Medicaid, maybe some military, TRICARE, not much. Okay. So about maybe half to 75% of their revenue is something we can affect positive change on. Half to 75%. Okay. So, and that would be, so we baseline that. Like, how bad is it? When you signed that contract, when you first started your practice, did you take a percentage above Medicare that today, because you've ignored it, is now below Medicare? I see. Okay. So Medicare is the benchmark. Right. So most of these commercial payers, which are how you would call like an Aetna, Blue Cross, Cigna, United, Humana, et cetera, Commercial means people under age 65. Okay. Um, most of those commercial payers pay a percentage above Medicare. Right. But they might pay that. They might have paid that on a 2010 year of Medicare. So in today's right. dollars, because it hasn't kept up every year with cost of living, mm -hmm. it's effectively maybe 80% of today's Medicare. Yeah, that's that's uh, kind of scary and fascinating at the same time. So yeah. Okay. So you. So we start with that. So you. Uh, let's say, let's can we go through like an uh, example where I'm a primary care physician. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you work with PCPs, as, yes, um, as well as specialists. Anything, any cool. doc, any specialty. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so uh, I hire you, give you a call. You come out and we meet, and you look over my contracts. We don't meet really ever. Don't need to. No, we don't need to. We um, send you a consulting agreement. 
and we can talk about how I get paid later, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You sign it, send it back with your data, or you give us a login to your practice management system, uh-huh. which we've signed a HIPAA document so that we have access to that. Right. Um, we pull the data we need. It takes us about 20 hours to figure out how bad it is mm-hmm. and to do a nice report. And then we do a presentation to you and your practice manager, your partners, whoever, and go through our findings. Our findings also include where we think we could get you. And so right. that's we kind of bundle that up and call that phase one. Mm-hmm. Here's how bad it is. Yes. Here's what we think we can do for you. And here's uh, the outlook and you know yes. what we think uh, you could be getting in these contracts. With their own numbers. Right. Like I could speculate with any practice that we could make them more money. But I like to be able to do it like, okay, you were at. 150% of Medicare today, you're at 100. So I'm pretty confident we can get you a 50% increase just by resetting you to what you were worth 10 years ago. Right. The challenge after that would be how do we make up for the 10 years without a rate increase? Like how much north of that could we get you? That's going to be the challenge right, for right. me. Right, Okay. And then we we can quantify that, like how much more they, they're going to be able to make when those new rates are in effect using last year's volume mm-hmm. of revenue. Yep. And... I don't know if I should say like how much our average client makes, but our average client has about two and a half, two to five time, two to five million, sorry, in negotiable revenue. And in the first year we make them usually about $600,000 more. And then we get them rate increases for beyond like hopefully year two and year three Mm -hmm. as well. So there's a lot of money that's, that needs to be. Yeah. Uh, Found. That is for them. Practice changing and life changing. I imagine for a, a lot of people. Um, and those numbers that it sounds like you work with a lot of different types of practices, everything from a solo provider to a big group. Is that is that right? Are, are those yeah. numbers an average? Or, or we're what starting. Are we looking at there, we're starting to. Um, we we need to come up with a better way to help the small guys. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel bad for the guys that have a hundred thousand dollars of negotiable revenue, but an hour spent on that, when I could be spending it on a fifty million dollar client isn't good right. use of my time. So if there's anybody listening who wants to help the underdog, I'd love somebody to know what we're doing to take on the little guys mm-hmm. and build their business. Okay. And even if they want to do the 50 million and learn how to do it, my I don't feel like anybody that gets a client anywhere is taking it from me. There's so many physicians to help that the more of us who can do it, yeah. The better for the world. There's not a, a scarcity mindset yeah. with yeah. you. That's cool. Um, so how many contracts are you looking over for a given practice? Is there yeah. a number that you have in mind or an average? Well, it typically, a normal practice might have 10 payer contracts, but the substantive ones like that have more than 5% of the revenue attributed to them would probably be five or six. Okay. So we'll quickly clean up some of the smaller ones, mm-hmm. um, but we don't focus a lot of time on them because oh. they don't, it, that wouldn't, that wouldn't move the dial for the doctor. Right. You want to, you know, catch the big fish first, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and uh, so, sorry, Ross, no. often the little ones give us an idea of what's possible because uh-huh. they're so little, you can just tell them, you know, we'll take 200% of Medicare and they'll say, okay, because they're happy to have you. Mm-hmm. And then you can tell the little guy or the bigger guys, well, we know we're worth 200% of Medicare because we got that from somebody else. Mm-hmm. So you got to get us closer to that. So sometimes there's value in doing the little payers, yeah, even if they don't bring many dollars to the practice. I get it. Okay, that's cool. 
Um, it's kind of like setting a precedent or something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what is the issue? I mean, I guess I'm, I'm thinking of the whole concept of negotiating these with these big, huge insurance companies that are almighty, all powerful and have all the time and money in the world to dedicate to giving you less money. Yes, um, they do. And they're good at it. That's why they have so much money. Yes. Um, so what is the issue for the provider or the practice? Are they, are they uh, entering into these long-term contracts when they should be entering into short-term contracts and constantly renegotiating or you know yearly or something like that? How, how does somebody uh, or practice get better at doing this yes. uh, contract negotiation and, and revenue optimization? That's a really good question. <laughs> That's a really good question. We, on a daily basis, are given examples of the uh, incompetency and um, organized you know, bureaucracy at the health plans to try and deprive doctors of rate increases. I'll remind on a regular basis, I'll remind a doctor, this person's title is VP of Network Management and Contracting, and they've ignored you for six months. So we we operate on the squeaky wheel gets the grease concept. And if our most doctors might or their practice administrators might call up once every three years and ask for a rate increase and just settle for a no. The payers will send them a form letter that says, we've reviewed your request. We think you're right in line with the market. Um, have a nice life. Try again even in a year or two. Mm-hmm. And, and they go away. In our negotiations, when we look back on a document that we're having a physician sign, there have been an average of 22 no's. So we've had to suffer through Whoa. 22 phone calls, meetings, emails for each health plan. And there's five health plans, maybe six that we're working with. So that's 120, 130 no's yeah. before we get to a yes. So we just don't let it fall through the cracks mm-hmm. at a busy doctor's office. Yeah. Um, and despite the multiple layers of people who are at the defense of the money at the insurance company, um, So we just keep at it and we keep escalating. We work with CEOs of insurance companies when it's a really big negotiation to let them know how the doctor's been treated. And at that point, we've got probably a year's worth of uh, being ignored, you know, being demeaned. You know, it's humiliating. Um, But ultimately it pays off because anybody in their right mind, especially people who are being paid millions of dollars to run this health plan, cannot justify the treatment of the physician seeking a decent wage Mm -hmm. and they definitely don't want it to get to their shareholders right or their employers of course like the employers are getting multi double digit rate increases every year and the doctors are stuck on 10 year old rates so where does it go they don't want anybody asking questions yeah where's the money going so what do you do what do you do that um you know when you're engaging in these negotiations or conversations or, you know, however, whatever words uh, that I'm not thinking of that yeah. <laughs> are, yeah. the, are the correct words. But, you know, the practice manager sends an email or in some way makes contact and says, hey, can we get more money? And they say, uh, no, you're on the average for the nation, blah, blah, blah. Try again next year. Uh, so what do you do differently? Yeah, good point. Um, um, if I'm summing that up No, you're summing that up really well, really um, well. But so, yeah, uh, yeah, where do you come in and, and what do you do that uh, I can't do myself or that uh, practice manager uh, can't do themselves? Yeah, I think the value of 
the value of what we do is that's all we focus on for the most part. Mm-hmm. Whereas for you, you might, you might have an, a Friday afternoon where you could start the process, but when are you ever going to get back to it again? Mm-hmm. So we just, and the same thing with a practice administrator. Um, so we just keep it at the, at the front of mind. I would suggest that it takes about a hundred hours over, it takes a hundred hours for somebody who really doesn't know what they're doing. We, we do it in maybe 50, 60 hours, but I would a lot, if you're going to do this on your own, a hundred hours mm-hmm. over the next six months to a year carved out of your schedule. If you're going to do this yourself to pester the payers for your rate increase. Right. And so and, that's like two and a half weeks of mm-hmm. uh, 40 hour <laughs> yeah. full-time job. Yeah. But for $600,000, mm-hmm. totally worth it. Sure. So, so, so yeah. what are you doing during those 50, 60 hours in terms of uh, your contact with yeah, these payers? That's a good question. So we start, once we baseline the revenue, then we know what we want to say and what our value proposition is. We start with a, a very comprehensive letter uh, that we draft on behalf of our clients, but there's no reason a doctor couldn't draft it him or herself. Um, you know, for example, if you've, if you're not coming right out of school and you have a practice that you're renegotiating for, you know, I would start with, we took care of 500 of your patients, your insureds last year. Um, we've been contracted since 2010. I've never before asked for a rate increase. Now I need one. Um, and then, so those are kind of the top attention getting, opening sentences for the first paragraph of the letter. Mm -hmm. Then we talk about, you probably don't know who we are. Since we've signed our contract in 2010, we've added six doctors. We've added a second location. We do extended office hours on the weekends. Like basically sing sing your praises. Like what do they not know about you that they need to know about you? Maybe we need to add some detail on what is our specialty. Um, You know, what is an interventional radiologist and why would a health plan care? Um, we try to focus on how they save any specialty saves money, like primary care. We have extended office hours. We keep people from going into the emergency room. Every patient that doesn't go into the emergency room because we have a nurse answering emails or answering phone calls or whatever you're doing is saving you $5,000. You know, all we want is a 20% increase on an office visit, which is about $20. Like the value proposition is kind of a no brainer. You'll still have to fight for it, but you'll get it. Because that's a totally legit um, argument. Right. Um, so we just spell out kind of what we think would be uh, valuable, valuable for the payer. We don't, we, you, anybody who does this on their own has got to like never use the word state of the art. Everybody tries to draft these letters and writes <laughs> state of the art. We have a state of the art. Laser. Laser. Or, X-ray. Yeah. X-ray machine. Or, right. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. And you nothing that would be patient uh, oriented, like, like on your website, if you have that come on in early and have a c- cup of tea or on Tuesdays, we have some lady come in and do a, a shoulder massage in our lobby. No, like really? nothing, what? no waterfall mention. If you have a waterfall <laughs> in your waiting room, what, why is that? What, uh, what are you getting at there? You are poor. You are running this practice on a I shoestring see. from 10 years ago. Like don't make it None of these payers are going to want to pay for any of that fluff. I see. So nothing patient-driven should go in this value proposition. Mm-hmm. It's I like to think of it if I'm at like a holiday party and I run into the CEO of Blue Cross. What I have two minutes. What do I tell yeah. him you or say, her? I'm using these rusty needles from yes. the 1900s. Yes. And uh, I need I need you to do. update my my uh, equipment here. You do, and yeah. believe me, with COVID, I was writing like sob inducing letters. I mean, our surgeons were on the front line of couldn't find an N95 mask. 
you know, the hospital, they were taking care of people in their cars in the parking lot. I mean, I would throw that in the letter. And you know what? You know what impact that had on the payers and our payer negotiations? Hmm. Nothing. Yeah. I would say on a regular basis, we asked for this rate increase before COVID hit. Now COVID hit. Now we thought worse. we were worth it then. We know we're worth it now. Yeah. Um, no impact. And we're now sending these letters to all these health plan executives who are working from home. You can hear their dog barking on the yeah. phone calls. They don't care. They don't know what the reality is like. Well, that's not very reassuring to say <laughs> to no, it's the just COVID story. The saying. onus is on you to really let them know because yeah. they're so far removed from it. Right. They don't know. Yes. When we actually do a payer negotiation call. So after the letters are exchanged and they send over proposals that are, you know, usually you can't have anything and then you finally get them to give you something and then they give you 2% and then you know the gap you have to close. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it gets to the point where we want to do a phone. Let's let's do a phone call and discuss this because clearly we're not, you know, communicating well. And we'd like a decision maker on the phone call. Like we, we've kind of wasted our time with you. Get your boss on the phone. OK. Um, that phone call goes very predictably. Yeah. And it starts with, hey, I've never talked to you before. Tell me about you at the health plan. OK. Where'd you come from? You know, just small talk. Then we at, we have our clients ask, tell us about your health plan. Like, who are some of the major employers that you pride yourself on having um, that we might see in our practice? Because they love to talk about that. Um, and then we, my favorite question is when we have the doctors ask, so tell me what you know about my practice. Mm-hmm. Crickets. I, we just did that yesterday. And the lady said, admitted, thankfully, uh, oh, I don't know anything about your practice. Um, and this is after months of emails and letters. Yeah. And she said, I don't know anything about your practice and tell me, tell me what you need me to know. And then we know we have them because this is the first time and it's real time and you've got their attention. You're on their calendar. You get to tell them what you want to, what you want them to value about you. And it always, it always moves the dial, but first you have to get them to admit they're on this phone call because somebody put it on their calendar yeah. and it's like they're against their will. Yeah. They they're, did, yes. They did no preparation. No prep. They're, they're not invested. They're yeah. not interested really. Nope. It's not just at all. part of their job that they have to do just, um, just like any other aspect of somebody's job. But then you get, you get finally a proposal that's slightly less insulting and potentially even tweakable to, to accept. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So you, you're talking a lot about the health insurance aspect of contract negotiation. Do you have, do physicians and do you deal with other contracts? Like, I don't know, um, equipment or with labs or with imaging centers or anything like that? Well, no, we don't, we don't do that. Um, if a doctor, a lot of doctors, especially surgeons, have surgery centers. Mm-hmm. Um, they've already got that established and have contracts to run it, manage it, mm-hmm. staff it, et cetera. We don't get into that, but we'll negotiate the contracts for the endoscopy center or the surgery center, again, against the payers for increase in revenue. We don't do anything operationally contract-wise. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that we do that we haven't talked about, because that's the negotiable revenue, right? just getting you signed up with the government payers, even though there's no negotiation of those fee schedules, that's a whole nightmare called um, credentialing. Have you heard of credentialing? I've heard of it, but tell us about it. Credentialing sucks. 
Um, nice. It's a waste of money. So we only do it for clients that are our contracting clients because it's a necessary evil. If they didn't have somebody do it well, then they can't get in the panel. So they can't see the patients under the contracts we negotiate for them. Okay. So what credentialing is, um, ugh, is um, every insurance company needs to basically do a background check on all of your credentials. Okay. You know that you got your undergrad and you have a degree or a diploma and you went to medical school and you've got a diploma and you um, don't, you have malpractice insurance and you have um, a DEA and a state license and they're not marred or, you know, you haven't gone to jail. Right. So, but why anybody needs to redo that, you know, is insanity. Mm -hmm. So there are some efforts to streamline that. But honestly, I think the stakeholders in the credentialing world, like the entire departments of credentialing people, hundreds of people at every health plan, um, continue to find ways to justify their existence and to pull that premium dollar to their department. Yeah. That nobody's really made any um, economies of scale and efficiencies right. in that. And it's a huge waste of money for the doctors, for the health plans. What I think would be a smart... Um, a smart fix would be, you know, hospitals really have to do this. When you go to apply to get hospital privileges, mm -hmm. they're not going to let you touch a patient on their floor without making sure you're a legit doctor. Mm -hmm. So I think once the hospital's given you privileges, it should be good to go. You should be good to go with all these payers, but you're not. So we end up having to fill out a lot of paperwork. The hardest application to complete correctly is Medicare. Yeah. So we start with our clients on their Medicare applications um, before they join the practice. Because if you don't have Medicare day one, you are dead weight to that practice yeah. until you can start seeing patients and billing for it. Right. So um, there's a long lead time for getting a Medicare application out the door. And if you don't know what you're doing, uh, they um, kick it back. So you'll hear stories from practicing physicians pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't have a Medicare number for a year because somebody you know, Mary at the front desk didn't know how to fill out the form correctly. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time doing Medicare numbers correctly. The one good news about COVID is under the public health emergency, and for some reason nobody knows why, you can get a Medicare number now, temporary Medicare number, in seven days. Okay, that's nice. Hopefully the outcome of whatever, whatever corners they've cut to make that a reality will endure beyond the public health emergency mm -hmm. because you shouldn't have to wait more right. than seven days to get a Medicare number. I know. I think COVID kind of did that to a number of different aspects of healthcare. It was kind of uh, all these hoops to jump through and bureaucracy. And then suddenly when we needed to, oh, this wasn't very necessary. Yeah. We can just cut that and get straight to the, the finish line, whatever you know, uh, endpoint we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, we have all the money in the world now for X, Y, and Z. And you know, we were pretty uh, tight-pocketed before. But uh, you know, I guess... Uh, pandemic will do that and uh just make those things appear out of thin air mm -hmm. it's been nice yeah so what, what's the uh, kind of maybe average time that a provider goes um from initiating the medicare application to completing it or to getting their credentials yeah, that's a good question 
they used to, so we, we have a whole webinar, which we can give you the link to, mm-hmm. um, that our credentialing people did for new physicians graduating from their residency programs. Oh, that'd be great. I would like to, I'll, yeah. I'll reference it in the intro as well, and I can link to it in the show notes, um, uh, you know, yeah. that we put out with each podcast. There are different intermediaries for Medicare throughout the country. So each one of them, they're called Max Medicare Administrative Contractors. Each one of them publishes on the website how long it takes for them to be generating Medicare numbers. Typically, pre-COVID, it was a minimum like probably 90 days on average for a Medicare number on a clean application. So the key is if it's a 20-page application, they get to page two and there's a mistake, they send it back. Then you, send, you correct that and send it back in again. Then they get to page three and there's a mistake they send it back. So they don't do the whole application and tell you what's wrong with it, or they didn't historically. So you might have to send it back in multiple times before your 90 day clock starts. Wow. You've begun this conversation with uh, credentialing sucks and I I get it now. Yeah. It totally absolutely sucks. (laughs) Yeah. That is horrible. Um, all right. What else do we need to know about kind of the differences between, um, uh, you know, commercial insurance versus government insurance? Uh, is there any other, Things that you see being uh, big roadblocks to physicians doing their job and getting paid for it. Yeah, let's go. Let's talk about billing. Um, so let's once you're it. once you're in network and you get an with like Medicare, for example, you get what's called a PTN number, a provider transaction account number. That means you're good to bill Medicare. When you join, let's say you get a contract, a brand new contract with Cigna or Aetna, mm-hmm. uh, it'll take effect on a on a date they determine. You know, so maybe you sign the contract today and you can start seeing their patients in March. Okay. March 1st or March 15th. They give you a date. Yep. Um, once that date occurs, you need to figure out how to get your claim into that payer. So the fee schedule you just worked really hard to negotiate tran- transpires and gives you the dollars that you're entitled to, right? Mm-hmm. So um, that billing, um, also not pleasant. Um, it starts with, for a new doctor, what it's called a practice management software. Like what practice management software do you want to use for your schedule Mm -hmm. so that every patient on your schedule gets a claim generated for that visit? So we recommend, I have no ownership interest in any practice management software, but if somebody's interested in kind of exploring what this is, a very basic one that has all the bells and whistles, that's super easy to, like you don't need to be trained for weekends of your life on it mm-hmm. um, is called Cario, um, K-A-R-E-O. Okay. And it's intuitive. It's like 300 bucks a month per provider. You know, it's a good price point. And so we, if nobody cares what billing software we use for them, we'll put them on Cario. Um, but there are lots of other ones out there that have all kinds of extra expense and more um, features, and, mm-hmm. you know, functionality. Advanced MD and Athena might be a couple of the more popular ones. Sort of Athena. I've used that in some uh, different rotations that I've been on. I don't e- know the other one, though. E-Clinical Works. Yep, know that one. Oftentimes, physicians from training end up getting used to the hospital. Like um, Epic yep. is what Centura uses here. Um, yeah. NextGen was used by hospitals for a long time. That's usually way more than you need for your doctor's op- for your private practice. Right. Um, but that's what you might be comfortable with. But you couldn't afford it probably in your private practice. So right. there are other there are other ones out there. 
if somebody goes into dermatology, there's some ones like modernizing medicine seems to be what a lot of the dermatologists use. Okay. So there might be some that are more customized for or evolved from certain specialty backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And you're calling these uh, practice management software. Is that yes. right? And that, yes. to me, you're, sounds like you're talking about uh, electronic medical records. Is there a difference? There is a difference. So the practice management part of it is the business part of it. Mm -hmm. It's the schedule, the database of addresses, insurance card information, demographic information on your patients, and the claims. And the claims contain codes, which we should talk about next. Yeah, let's talk billing, okay. and then we'll get to coding or, or blend them together as much yeah. as you'd like. Well, so for practice management, those are it's the business side of it. The EHR plugs into, and I'm doing air quotes, the EHR plugs into the practice management system. So you can have, like you could have Cario be your practice management system, meaning your schedule and your billing software, but you could use any multitude of proprietary EHRs yeah. based on whatever your specialty might, you know, work best with. Sure. Um, so they don't have to be the same. They can, for some companies like Athena, be the same, mm -hmm. but they don't have to be the same. So oh. they are, to me, two different software packages, practice okay. management and an EHR, not synonymous. Yeah. Um, so, so then you have to establish electronic connectivity with the payers. And there's an intermediary uh, called a, like an EDI, Electronic Data Interchange okay. Company. Here locally, there's a national one called Trizetto like right down the street, there's only two. There's Gateway and Trizetto, I think, that you would contract with through your practice management software to submit your claims electronically to the health plans. Mm -hmm. And then the health plans, if they've loaded your contract correctly, which is always iffy, um, will we'll say, see your tax ID, your NPI number, and then pay it according to your fee schedule. Mm -hmm. And then the money should get routed electronically into your practice's checking account. Mm -hmm. But all that needs to be set up by a biller or a billing company. Right. Um, and, and so what, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, the differences between a small practice who's trying to do this on their own versus somebody who gets a consultant who knows what they're doing here. Uh, how do you see that those two things diverging or those two kind of scenarios being different? Um, is there a way that people totally screw this up and screw themselves out of money or efficiency uh, versus, yeah. you know, hiring somebody yeah. who knows how to do this. I think, I think the biggest, the biggest advice I could give is just cause somebody says they're a biller, don't trust them. And I have a billing knowledge assessment, which we could also give you. I did it on the plane once heading to a coding conference. Cause I thought, how do doctors, if somebody's resume says they're a biller, uh -huh. how you hire them, right? Cause they're telling you they're a biller. How, I would have before this conversation, yes. but now. <laughs> how do you how do you ascertain without a billing background whether or not they're a good biller or a bad biller? So I I created a billing knowledge assessment, which is a it's intended to take about ten minutes mm -hmm. in the waiting room of somebody getting ready to interview for a billing job at a doctor's office. Nice. With no reference material, like they should know this stuff off the top of their head, mm -hmm. and um, multiple choice, and then they turn it in, and. Um, there were questions like, for an office visit, what is most likely the CPT code this doctor would bill? And they, we give ranges of office visits. Uh -huh. The correct answer, 99201 through 99215. But we give other ones that are maybe okay or totally not uh -huh. even feasible. And you, and you score it. And then we and, score it. Yeah. yeah, another question might be like, if so, if a doctor is going to um, do something bilaterally, what modifier would they put on a, on a claim, mm -hmm. on a code? And the answer is 50. You know, anybody knows that. Um, right. 
in our region, we ask who's the TRICARE intermediary. Like there's a Medicare intermediary. We could ask that. Who's the Medicare intermediary for our state? Because okay. any biller should know that. Got it. The average score on the super easy <sighs> oh, no. 20 question multiple choice exam. Do you want to guess? Uh, is it scored out of 20? It scored like the... A, B, C, D out of 100, you know, like a percent of. I don't know. Just tell me. I'm, I'm terrified. 68? 68%, which is a D. Mm-hmm. And these are people. In med school, that's an F. That's an F in med yeah. school. That's an F really <laughs> anywhere. These people are saying they're billers. They, some of our clients give it out to their current billers and the billers quit because they don't want to be asked what they know. Right. So billing is the wild west. So when you ask, can a doctor do it him or herself? The answer is yeah. I mean, anybody can do this. Um, probably better to do it yourself than trust it. Hire a quack. To, to yeah. somebody who claims they know what they're doing and they don't. People call us. Um, I'm hoping your listenership isn't in the millions. People call us and we just tell them how to do it. Mm-hmm. We don't charge, you know, because it's not rocket science. First million get, get yeah. free. Get, yeah. get free. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that'll be the day, but... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, okay. So, um, so that's billing. Yes. So you act as a, a consultant in that way as well. Let me give you another warning for your listeners. Please. The, these software companies that created this software, which is a necessary evil to submit claims electronically and capture data used to do that for a license fee. Mm-hmm. You know, they get 500 bucks a month or a thousand dollars a month for a practice. Well, then they realized, you know, these billing companies are making a percent of the doctor's revenue and these doctors are making $5 million. Why are we getting $500 a month when they're running $5 million worth of revenue so through our software? So in maybe the last five to 10 years, they start selling that they are also billing services, and they are not. Mm-hmm. And they do it at 2%. So here as a billing company owner, I might charge 6%, but people, physicians who don't know any better are telling me, oh, Athena can do it for 2%. I'm just going to go with Athena. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> and that. then when it goes to yeah. heck, and they've got a million dollars of outstanding claims that the payers haven't paid on, then they call me. And or they and then I have them call Athena and say, where's my million dollars? And the answer is, and I shouldn't pick on Athena because it's all of them. Mm-hmm. The answer is, oh, well, you didn't think you could get billing for 2%. You were supposed to have 4% worth of people at your practice following up on all the problem claims. Right. So just be wary. These people, the software companies are not entitled to the percentage of the revenue. They, they are not full service billing companies, but they are representing, unfortunately, to naive physicians that they are the full package solution. And I could give you dozens of doctors who've fallen for it for each and for each software, um, company. Yeah. I feel super naive, uh, with this whole conversation because you know, like we talked about, not this, this is, uh, not something that, uh, is at all addressed in medical school. Um, I don't know how much it is in residency either. I'll, I'll have to update you on that one. Uh, when I update you on my cousin's, uh, future career, but, um, so yeah, how does, can we kind of go back to the, the super basics of billing? Yes. Cause my super naive mind wants to believe that, uh, in this day, day and age of computers, everything gets kind of updated, uh, automatically and, and everything just works perfectly, which I know is not correct. Um, but I oh. come, I see you for a, uh, whatever primary care complaint or uh, a visit that you have. And I type in all the 
things that we talked about and I order some labs and whatever else and I click send or, you know, um, nice. Um, I, I click, um, you know, save, okay. save my, save my note. And then what happens? And then it goes to the insurance company and then a week later a check shows up on my door or it gets deposited into my bank account. Um, with the exact right amount. Um, that's obviously not how it works, no. you know. So <laughs> this is great, right? So, so, yeah. but I'm just kind of setting the stage yeah. for how would you explain this to a first grader of how billing works and just the steps of the process? Got it. So, I should say before I went off on billing, um, Medicare is actually quite simple. So, Medicare, your little analogy might work well. Okay. For Medicare. Yeah. There's not that much negotiation. There's no negotiation and you bill and you get paid and their rules are public. Like you can look up the rules. Can I bill this with that? Yes. Easy. Um, So I'm I'm not talking smack about Medicare. Mm -hmm. I do want people warned. And in your little example, um, it will not go well with (laughs) your commercial insurance companies. I mean, they've been sued under... Uh, I think it's called the RICO, like racketeering. Mm-hmm. Um, Heard of it? Yeah, it's like it's like how they take down mobs. Yeah, they've all these health plans in years past, like twenty years ago, were sued for racketeering because they the phenomenon is called bundling. Right. You know, they say, oh, you had to draw blood to run that lab test, but the blood draw is included in the payment for the lab. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to get paid for that. Mm-hmm. Um, or, oh, you did um, a wart removal on the same day as an office visit. Right. That's just a necessary service for that office visit. So we're not going to pay for the wart removal. We'll yeah. pay for the office visit. Or you think you spent 40 minutes with that patient, but it seemed like based on their diagnosis, it could have been done in 30. So we're going to downcode yeah. your office visit to uh, a lower paying so office fr- visit. I'm frustrated right now. Just yeah. Just, uh, with these hypothetical examples. Yeah. Yeah. Did you notice how quickly I came up with three examples yeah. of bundling and downcoding <laughs> and taking money out of your pocket? Sure. Yeah. It's not, I mean, there's thousands. Yeah. And, and I, as a, Ooh. as a med student, Ooh, oh, I have yeah, a story. No, go for it. I was interviewing like one of my favorite people, Chris Ferrani, who I'm going to make listen to this podcast. And actually Chris Ferrani should do a podcast for you. Sure. Hook so me up. Chris Ferrani, Went to, this is a good story, so mm-hmm. let me set it up just mm-hmm. a little bit, just so you know. Chris Ferrani was a fighter pilot in the Navy, retired, um, w- wanted to get into medical school here, and didn't get into medical school for some reason, but got his master's in finance in the meantime, then got into medical school. So the summer between master's in finance and medical school, he came to work here. Mm-hmm. And he actually helped write our compliance plan for physicians, which we'll have to talk about, because it's Chris Ferrani's masterpiece, and it was amazing. Got it. He came in for an interview wearing a suit. Um, interviewing to be... Interviewing to do a summer job here. A summer job, okay. Um, I mean, we're so not worthy. It was crazy. And he sat at that chair, and I, I said to him, I am so sorry. I had been on hold with Aetna for 45 minutes, and I thought I'd be done with this phone call before you arrived. And But if you don't mind, let's do our interview. And every once in a while, Aetna will pop up, and I'll have to tell him, like, they'll say, are you okay st- continuing to hold? And I'll say, Sure. And then we can continue to talk. So that's yeah. how this phone call went. Mm-hmm. I was call I was calling Aetna because we do billing at the the time we were doing billing for neurosurgeons, 
and everything bundled into the fluoroscopic guidance payment of $34. An entire $40,000 spine surgery paid $34. Uh-huh. And so I, I said to, it was a perfect interview for somebody <laughs> getting ready to go to medical school. Right. Are you really sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and he did. And hopefully he'll go change it. He'll change the system. But um, yeah, those neurosurgeons, if I didn't fight for it, we're going to get paid $34 for that spine surgery. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You're really selling your services here because, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I mean, that's the, like, there are a lot of people who say they do billing. Are they fighting for your $34 or are they writing it off because it's too hard to collect on? Mm-hmm. So yeah. you stay and don't trust your billing to somebody. Right. So Without in that case, you need verifying. somebody to uh, really go to bat for you or just, I mean, it's not that much of a task to wait on hold for an hour, I guess. Oh, uh, but that's one surgery. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, how many surgeries, they're all getting denied mm-hmm. or not paid correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm sorry. You had no. a question. I well, I was going to say, oh. I just, I, I noticed that um, your examples earlier of just little, little, um, you know, ticky tack, uh, ways in which they can do these bundling, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, what do you call them, bundling issues. Uh, I've seen that a million times, especially with like a, a annual visit. Oh, you're coming in for your annual visit. We're just supposed to essentially make conversation and uh, I'll refer you to a colonoscopy or whatever other kind of chronic care management. Because if you come in with your annual for your annual visit, and you have uh, whatever back pain depression. or depression or a cough, we can't address that today. Mm. You have to make an appointment again. And you will come back and do you know because one doctors don't have time uh, anyway to address all the issues that you might want to come in for, and people tend to wait until they have mm-hmm. all the issues to come in. Um, and then also there's the issue of billing for it as well, which is probably the bigger issue. And doctors will make time to address your cough and your back pain, your depression and your chronic care management if they could make that work financially. But if they're just going to get completely screwed on doing that, yeah, then Why bother? no way. Yeah. So one good thing happened recently, uh, last year for those office visits, Um, It used to be that you had to do a history, you had to do an exam, comprehensive exam, you had to have moderate to high medical decision making to just hit the mid-level office visit, a level three office visit, which might pay you $75 on an established patient. Mm -hmm. And the government, those guidelines were from the 90s, and they're totally irrelevant now with electronic health records that pull forward so much of the history. Right. And, you know, a full exam shouldn't be necessary for something that's really much more limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so today you can you can value your office visits more easily um, by just basing them off of time, which means you have to have time. If somebody only schedules you 15 minutes to see a patient, you can't get higher than a level three office visit okay. for an established patient um, or medical decision making. So how complicated was seeing that patient today? How many drugs and side effects of drugs are you having to take into consideration with your prescription? Um, So it's gotten a little bit easier. What Medicare did do when they changed those rules, though, is they added an extra five minutes to hit the threshold. So I think now you need like 20 minutes in order to hit a level three. And the rationalization for doing that was you, you are using an electronic health record now, 
which you weren't in the 90s. So you don't have to sit and write everything down. So we're just going to make you have to talk to the patient five minutes more to get the same level you used to get paid mm-hmm. for before we relax Inflation the rules. Inflation of time. Yes. Yeah. So be efficient at yeah. your be efficient at your charting or have a scribe. If you work for a health system and somebody else is paying the overhead, get make them give you a scribe so you're not busy clicking buttons in your in your software. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, um, let me see. Did we fully address the? Um, I guess you kind of did with your story of uh, the neurosurgeon getting screwed out of forty thousand um, dollars, but. How you come in, in the, or wh- how yeah. a biller comes in, I should say, is um, they go and get that money. Uh, the, they, they realize a discrepancy in terms of how much was billed versus how much should be paid or uh, versus how much was paid. And they, in theory, they go and get that money. In theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, most likely, they have no idea how much you're supposed to get paid because the public fee schedule is Medicare. Mm-hmm. So I used to have a billing company here in Denver called me on a regular basis and asked me to refer clients to them. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's fine. I said, tell me what a doctor should get paid by Medicare in Colorado for a 99213, which is a established patient 15 or 20 minute visit. Yeah. Most commonly billed code to Medicare and all other payers. And the guy would put me on hold and he'd run around and ask his billers and they couldn't tell him. So I said, okay, try again next year. I never would refer anybody to that billing company because that is such a basic question that a billing company should know it. What's the answer? Well, I mean, like I said, now I have to look it up, but it's, I'd have to look it up, but I could look it up in the moment, like with my computer, you know, 90 bucks, probably 75 to $90, something like that. And it varies geographically. Yep. And I'd have to look. That's but, fair. No, I, I yeah. get what you're saying. But I'm like, it's not hard they don't to even, they didn't even come, minutes. they put me on hold and didn't yeah. come back with an answer. Got it. Um, yeah. And that's Medicare. With Aetna, Aetna, if you don't know better, is going to sign you up to, are you ready? The Aetna market fee schedule. Okay. What's that? Doesn't sound very favorable. No, what are they going to pay for a 99213? Half that. No, you don't, don't yeah, you don't even yeah. know. Oh, yeah, I see. I had a client in San Antonio, Texas, where we did, in their baseline of their contracts, we looked up the Aetna market fee schedule, 65% of Medicare. Mm-hmm. And they all signed it. And they thought it was great because they were getting 100% of the Aetna market fee schedule without questioning what that was. Mm-hmm. We, for a client, just learned that Care First, which is a huge Blue Cross plan in the Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. Like, I, I just mix cities and states. But mm-hmm. their 100% of the Care First fee schedule is below 70% of Medicare. And mm-hmm. no, nobody knows that. And, 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 kind of, and your billers don't know that. Yeah. And so, based on what you were saying earlier... It should be over 100% of Medicare. It should like easily, all, everything should be over 100%, easily be over 100% of Medicare. 100% of Medicare. Right? But if you have a biller who's posting $50, mm-hmm. um, they're just going to post that all day long, and they're not going to realize it should be you know, $120. So again, you have to be involved enough to at least tell your billers, for a no- every once in a while, double check that United is paying me $120 for a 99213. And uh-huh. if they don't, bring it to me. Uh-huh. Yes. Don't just give them carte blanche to post payment as paid in full without auditing. So that's right. a biller. Yes. A biller a biller is an amazing person because that's a tough job. And mm-hmm. there's all kinds of facets of billing. For example, patients who come in and they say, I don't have my wallet, I can't pay my copay. 
you know, somebody has to go collect that $15. And if you send a bunch of statements and the patient never pays on them, somebody has to sit on the phone and call Mm -hmm. and say, could you please make a payment right now? So that's an aspect of billing that nobody likes. Um, That's a tough job to fill. So there's lots of aspects of billing. Like it's not, it's usually shouldn't be one person's job because there's no way anybody could be good at all of this. Yeah. So, but then there's coders. Mm -hmm. Then there's coders and most doctor's offices don't even hire coders or they have a biller who maybe got her coding certification, but it's an open book test and really doesn't understand the nuances of coding. Right. Let's talk about coding now because uh, that was kind of... Um, how I first uh, met you was actually at Dr. Stathos's uh, pediatric G- uh, Rocky Mountain Pediatric GI, I think is uh, what they're called. Yeah. And uh, I was a med student there. You came in, and Dr. Stathos has this ginormous book um, of ICD-10 codes. It was, you know, bigger than uh, several dictionaries put together. And um, and you were coming in for a meeting with them, uh, with him, and uh, uh, I got out of there. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, I, I guess my assumption was that you were, I don't know what you were going to do with that, that book, but he was, he was se- seemingly having that, uh, tome of ICD 10 codes, yeah. uh, ready to go for your conversation. Oh, that's generous. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was there to help. He's a billing client. So I'm pretty sure I was there to help. Okay. Um, he's a really good advocate for negotiating his own contracts. And I just uh-huh. show up to tell him the numbers to call and who to who to rail at and what to say. Okay. And then he does it. Right. So he's a good advocate. Yeah, he's really good. Um, Coding. So that book you're talking about, there's three coding books. Mm -hmm. The ICD-10 coding book just got huge because it used to be ICD-9 with 10,000 diagnostic codes that Mm -hmm. you could choose from. From the 70s on, you had about 10,000 diagnostic codes to choose from. It it got converted to ICD-10, I think, October of 2015. And now it's 40,000 diagnosis codes to choose from. Okay. And much uh, longer, they went from five-digit potential max codes to seven-digit codes. So it's a little bit more complicated. In the coding class that um, we teach, uh, we teach ICD-10 coding in three classes, so nine hours. Okay. It's not hard. Okay. For hospitals, especially for physicians in training, the hospital's sole method of getting paid by Medicare is on the primary diagnosis code. Okay. What is the sickest, you know, condition that the patient has that will net the largest bundled payment from Medicare? Mm-hmm. So hospitals paid a lump sum of money under a program called a payment methodology called DRGs, Diagnostic Related Groups. Well, the first word is diagnostic. Mm-hmm. So if you come in for a heart attack, you're going to get forty five hundred dollars. If you come in and you've got sepsis and you're in the ICU, and you might get forty thousand dollars. So Everything at the hospital is focused on the diagnostic coding. Okay. When you leave training and you go out into the real world, you barely need to know about diagnostic coding. Right. 100% of how you get paid is on the other book, which is CPT, Current Procedure Terminology. Okay. CPT codes. And then a smaller book that's more important for durable medical equipment type practices than mm-hmm. you. Like orthopedic surgeons are probably going to have more of their money dependent on this HICPIX code book, okay. which are all the things a doctor's office can provide that's a non-physician or non-provider service. So oxygen, injections, wheelchairs, DME, mm-hmm. that's all in the HICPIX 
Okay. Um, healthcare Common Procedure Code Set, I think is what it's called. Mm-hmm. So the hospital gets paid mostly by the ICD-10 code. Like 100% by okay. the ICD-10 code. So their, their coders in the hospital setting know ICD-10 coding. Mm-hmm. They would not be a good candidate to code for a doctor's office. Because mm-hmm. all you need for a doctor's office claim to go through is basically, I don't want to simplify it too much, but one reason code. Mm-hmm. Why is this patient here? You could diagnose this code cough and that claim will sail through. Okay. So what, and the way you get paid is off those procedure codes and maybe a small amount of it would be off those HICPICs, uh-huh. non-procedure, so non-physician codes. Yeah. So let's say you have a, you come in with a cough and you have some, um, you're coughing up blood and you have uh, some sputum in there too. And then you also have the aforementioned back pain Hmm. and, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know, a wart on your fingertip like we were talking about earlier. Yes. Um, So I'm going to put down for your visit that you had a cough. You had blood. You're coughing up blood. Yeah. You had sputum. You had all those things, back pain, wart. Yes. Um, Are all those getting coded for and are the reason for the visit and thus you're getting in theory yes able to bill for each of these yes so what you do is you put on the claim form there's a single claim form called that mostly goes electronically so it's hard to find a copy of it but you can find a copy of them mm-hmm. it's called a cms 1500 claim mm-hmm. form um you can put down 12 diagnosis codes up to 12 diagnosis codes and you can list like six or eight CPT codes. And then there's a little box that lets you link them. So your nine, nine, two, one, three, or your, whatever your office visit is might link to the cough, the wart removal or lesion removal might then link to the diagnosis code for, um, the wart. Mm-hmm. What was the other one? I think back pain. Oh, back pain. Uh... Yeah. Back pain. You might just link with the office visit, you know? So okay. the, the ICD 10 codes just become a green light to pay that claim. So the only reason why you wouldn't want to include more diagnosis codes is if you, uh, if one of them raises a red flag and kicks the claim out, you mm-hmm. know, cause like, oh, we're auditing everybody that's putting low back pain on their claims cause it's too frequently used or something. You know, you just don't want to raise any reasons to have your claim rejected, mm-hmm. but all of those should help that claim just sail through. Okay. No problem. Okay. And then, so it sails through to the payer. Yes. Through the EDI. Through, mm-hmm. From your practice management system through the EDI to the payer, they process it. They send back a. If you if you're not electronically connected, you'll get a check in the mail with an explanation of benefits that somebody has to then type back into your practice management system. Mm-hmm. But most of them come back electronically, and then it's called auto posting. Mm-hmm. Automatically goes into the patient's account and posts all that information. Yeah. So and the check the money goes into your checking account automatically. Right. In okay. Theory. And so if, uh, let's say I didn't write the back pain on there, but the back pain would have been a fine thing to write. I just, we, I forgot to put it on. Doesn't matter. Then am I getting paid less for that? No, no, no. The reason why you would have a coder, the reason why you'd have a coder is if you are doing complicated things mm-hmm. like spine surgeries, where the mix of services you're providing might, um, bundle, um, for example, you're doing spine surgery and you're doing a cervical spine incision and you're doing a lumbar spine incision. The health plans set up their claim systems to presume you've coded that wrong, that it was one and that you made a mistake coding the lumbar surgery and it should have just been the cervical one. So they'll deny the whole lumbar stuff. Uh-huh. So in that event, you would want a coder to put 
ICD-10 codes in, diagnostic codes in that are unique to lumbar and tie them to those codes and cervical codes that tie to those procedures yeah. so that it matches beautifully and it pays correctly. Okay. So it's, but for the most part in a primary care setting or just a clinic setting, I should say, then you're getting paid via the nine, nine, two, one. Yeah. Your code. office visit, the office visit code, which are pretty simple. A coder might help you. I mean, there's no problem having a biller who's also a coder. Um, the health plans change the rules on a regular basis. For example, blue cross, sent out a memo to everybody in recent years saying, if you do anything like that wart removal in addition to the office visit, we'll pay for both, but we're going to reduce your office visit by 50%. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have a coder who can, fu- you know, who can say, no, 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 that's not right. Or if that's what you're going to do, you have to double what you're going to pay for the office visit to offset it. Like, we're just not going to sit here and take 50% less because you changed a policy. Right. So the coders are a little bit more sophisticated and can help identify things that are beyond normal like Medicare payment methodology. So so you've got somebody helping fight you on those proprietary bundling techniques. Very interesting. And so how, how does that impact the patient? We're kind of talking about it from the doctor's perspective, but if um, the patient, if the, if the code is wrong, let's say, or, or gets uh, changed to be correct, I mean, what, what, what are the potential... Um, impacts. How, how does the patient uh, yeah. uh, get impacted? So here? we're physicians ally, but on a regular basis, we're patients ally mm-hmm. just for friends and family. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's impossible to navigate the claims processing and insurance benefit system, like on your own, it doesn't make any sense to a normal person. Right. So um, like none of this should impact the patient. Um, but it does. So, Mm -hmm. and I just, my advice for any patient is just don't presume it's done correctly. Right. You know, cause you'll call the biller and ask why they did it that way. And you'll probably get a different answer on a different day from a different biller. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to verify, um, with the smoke in the mirrors who's right. One of our favorite, um, in our family, one of our favorite line, like throwaway lines is HIPAA. HIPAA. Because if you ask at like a doctor's office, they'll be like, I need to see your insurance ID card. And I'll say, because I know what I'm doing, I'll be like, okay, that's fine. But it hasn't changed since the last time I was in here, like two weeks ago with a different kid. And they'll be like, well, HIPAA requires it. You know, I mean, people just, right. when you, you know, they don't know what they're doing when they <laughs> yeah. say, when they blame HIPAA. Sure. But, okay. So just, that's a red flag. Just keep an eye out for HIPAA. Another red flag mm-hmm. for a doctor's office, there's a magic modifier that's a 59 modifier that unbundles these procedures that might get bundled together by the payers. Mm -hmm. And we see billers throw 59 modifiers on every line item of a claim because that way they don't have to deal with doing it correctly. Mm -hmm. What it does do though, is bring all kinds of liability to the doctor because they have screens at the health plans to pull 59 modifiers. Like if you're, if 80% of your claims are coming in with a 59 modifier on them, you're going to be on a list and they're going to call you. So you have the liability for the incompetence of your billers and coders. Right. right. So, you know, just if you look at your data and a whole bunch of things that are popping up in your practice reports have 59 modifiers on them, that's a big clue that your biller doesn't know what she's doing mm-hmm. and, or he, but mostly she. Yeah. It's a female dominated industry. Female dominated industry. One other takeaway, and I know we're running out of time. One other takeaway is yep. the way you get paid. Um, yeah. All of these codes like that 99213, has what's called a relative value unit. Yep. And back in the day, uh, 1983, I think is when Medicare 
came up with the resource-based relative value scale, mm -hmm. RBRVS, how they pay physicians. And the whole thing was it's supposed to be based on resources. And those resources are your overhead, your time, um, and like your like mental anguish, you know, how much, okay. how much complexity. So they, so they, they came up with like these people at like Yale, I think came up with a rank order of every procedure. And at the time, the, a 99211, which is a simple nurse visit mm -hmm. was one. So a C-section would be 33. So everything was relative to what if a nurse just did it? How much more resources would it take? Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know that history. Yes. Keep going. Yeah. So, um, so within that 33, let's say you're doing, you're an OB and you're doing a C-section and it's that code is valued at 33 relative value units. Mm -hmm. Typical breakdown of those relative value units is 40% for overhead, probably 55% for the physician work and 5% for malpractice. Okay. So when you join a practice or you become a hospital employee, you're going to get paid on the 55% of that 33 units for your physician work. Mm -hmm. And if they also, if you have to pay your own malpractice, you'll get the 5% for your malpractice as well. Okay. So let's just so say, let's round up. Let's say you get $15 for that C-section. Okay. What you end up getting paid on is a conversion factor that is negotiable. Mm-hmm. So Medicare, 100% of Medicare is $34. Okay. So 34 times 15 would be how much you get paid for that C-section. Okay. 34 times 18 is how much the hospital is going to keep because they have the overhead, they have the malpractice, let's okay. say. So you end up, when you graduate, your payment most likely is going to be a, a paid on a work RVU, mm -hmm. which is 50-ish percent of what the RVUs are in the Medicare fee schedule. Uh -huh. So if you want to, if you're, if you're, if Blue Cross pays you 150% of Medicare, you, that's $52, I think, times your allotted work RVUs is how you would be getting paid for that, okay. whatever you do, that office visit. That little office visit we talked about, that 99213, yeah. is, has like a RVU of two or three. So you have to do a lot of 50%, like you might get one and a half. RVUs per office visit times $34 if you're seeing a Medicare insured that day. Uh -huh. I mean, that's $50 an office visit is what you're netting right. on that. And if you own a private practice, you're getting $100. And in order to pay yourself $50, you have to keep your overhead to $50. Right, yep. So it becomes, it becomes a management of resources and our job and your job too initially should be maximize that conversion factor with the payers. Don't mm -hmm. try to do it all for $34. Right. Which so, is what Medicare pays. And that's just a basic contract negotiation. Is that? Yeah. Or, that's or, what kind of how we started. Fancy that goes into that negotiation. No, that's the whole, that's everything we that, just talked about at the right. beginning. Like yeah, when yeah. I said a health plan should pay you at least 120% of Medicare, uh -huh. you're going up from that $34. Yeah. And $34 varies. You know, next year might be 33 with Medicare. It might be 35. We don't really know. But right. in general, the whole thing starts with that negotiation. Mm -hmm. And then and then that results in how much you get paid. What's left over if you run your own practice yeah. is what you take home. Right. So everything else we talked about, billing, 
mm-hmm. coding, credentialing is paid. And then you get what's left. Right. Interesting. And so this is all within the context of dealing with insurance, basically. There's practices uh, that don't take insurance, that oh, concierge yeah. medicine, direct primary care. Yeah. They have a need for a physician's ally uh, or a comparable no. uh, consultant because uh, they're just... No, they're happy. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, they're happy. We yeah. just said we helped a guy set up a practice on some remote island in Florida. And we're just so happy for him. Yeah. He, when he was like wallpapering or whatever he was doing in there on the weekend, he'd left hospital employment to go open up this practice because there was no doctor on the island. Mm-hmm. And um, he was wallpapering or doing something. And I mean, he got 40 people that came in that weekend to ask if they could sign up with him. So he's going to do just fine. Yeah. And he didn't take insurance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, it's a definitely a, a part of a, a growing field is direct primary care. Yeah. We, I uh, just actually recorded an interview yesterday with somebody who does that virtually. And then tomorrow I'm going to record an interview with somebody who does that in, in person. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's a model that's growing. So I think it's kind of interesting. You're sandwiched between two people who don't even deal with insurance right now for the most part in terms of when I'm interviewing them. In my mind, you are. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. No, it's good. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Yeah. I think eventually, um, I think you're worth 300% of Medicare. Mm-hmm. There's nobody asking for that. You're not asking for it. I'm asking for it. I had a health plan executive, a VP at Aetna here locally, tell me, Marsha, we can send out a letter and drop our fee schedule for 11,000 physicians in Colorado. We can deal with the 1% that you represent. So I represent so few people who are advocating for what they're worth mm-hmm. that I'm not making a dent. You going into concierge medicine and there, there being a complete absence of primary care providers in any of these networks that these health plans are trying to sell to employers will get somebody's attention. Yeah. And then maybe they make it worth your while to do all this. Right. That's interesting. That's cool. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I, I, uh, that, that whole, I don't know, chess battle makes me, <laughs> it makes me nervous because I don't understand the basics of the, the rules of the game. Like you're, you're laying out for us right now. Um, but I mean, that's why we're having these conversations and broadcasting it. So that's awesome. I, I do say sarcastically to my physicians, hey, listen, they're not going to pay you what you're worth, so just get some stock. Uh-huh. Just have them pay you in like one share of United, you know, every day. So you get 350 shares of United all day or all year. Uh-huh. I mean, if you can't beat them, you know, join them. They're laughing all the way to the bank because right. you're trained to treat people and not to care how much you get paid. Right. And this is what we have today. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a pretty big uh, hedge. Yeah. Like a, a hedging your bets there. Or, I mean, not not a big one, but that's a... They won't clever. do it. It's they clever. won't do oh, it. Oh, no. They won't do it. But like you said, they're the 800-pound gorilla, and we got to figure out a way to... We got to figure out a way to get them to put their money where it belongs. Some of their money. Like a few billion dollars more would be nice to go to primary care each sure. year. Yeah, I'll take a few billion. Yeah. They just, rec- they just had record-breaking profits. Right. Billions. Yeah. Billions. I know. I see this all the time where you get some sort of uh, uh, news story where it's the top 10 uh, CEOs of health companies or whether it be insurance or hospital systems or whatever, you know, look at the, their bonuses this year and look at their salaries this year. And it's uh, 
kind of disgusting. Yeah. It's, it's super disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think we've pretty well covered the the big topics that I wanted to talk about: billing, coding, um, contract negotiation. Is there anything else on on your mind that you want to? Oh, Jerry's telling impart- me compliance. Compliance. Yeah, let, we can. Well, we just can, quickly. Yeah, we can hit that for sure because that's a world I, I don't really get either. That's Chris Verani. You got to get Chris on here. Um, when he came here, I had I had gathered a pile of paperwork in the corner of my office that was just everything that somebody was trying to sell us, which would be a doctor's office too. Like we're on the same mailing list. Mm-hmm. You know, they try to scare you about HR regulations and the Americans with Disabilities Act and HIPAA and OSHA and um, the False Claims Act and all of these federal regulations that are um, affecting medicine. And I threw them in the corner, all these fly, I was like two or three feet tall worth of materials that they were trying to sell to doctor's offices, like buy our policies and procedures, buy our training, have our consultants come help you, et cetera, et cetera. And like every doctor's office too, because I'm focused on the revenue, I didn't look at that. But all these health plan contracts say that you are complying with all of those laws that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I knew none of my doctors were. I surveyed them. Um, We had like 80 practices respond. And I remember one of the questions was, how much is your budget for compliance on an annual basis? And like 40, I think it was 38 and a half percent of respondents said nothing. And of, of the physicians who responded, um, the average exp- the average budget for those sixty percent was twelve hundred dollars. Well, you can't hire a lawyer for twelve hundred dollars to help you navigate HIPAA. Yeah. Um. So so Chris's job that summer was to put together, go through the pile, figure out what all the laws were, and there were like twenty five laws maybe, and then figure out what's the law, uh, why do we care, and how do we comply with it. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote a compliance manual that we sell for cheap, like three hundred bucks. Um. So that busy physician practices will be covered by all these federal laws without really having to do what we had to do mm-hmm. to, to write that um, book. So um, so there there is compliance. It's kind of a necessary evil. I mean, every, every doctor's office has to comply with all these federal laws you don't even know about because you didn't go to law school either. You didn't go to business school. You didn't go to law school. <laughs> right. Um, and some of the big ones are like HIPAA. HIPAA alone, so the, the compliance manual we, we have is a one-page com- policy that's basically what it is, why do we care, and how do you comply with it. So bare minimum to cover all those federal laws for busy practice. Um, two other manuals are kind of an outgrowth of that. HIPAA is just one of those 25 federal laws, mm-hmm. but that is such a massive law that it's 567 pages. And so what we had done like several years ago is like 10 years ago is we culled it down to what would a doctor's office need to care about. Yeah. And that's a 120 page manual. Jeez. Yeah. I'm really proud of it. Um, it passes OCR, the office for civil rights is the agency that polices HIPAA Uh and it's gone through several audits. Like when our clients get audited, they submit our policies and procedures and it's passed. So it's kind of been tested. Um, and we sell it through another organization to MGMA Medical Group Management Association. But we make them available. So if there's a busy doctor's office, and I don't want to sell like our stuff, I just want you to know it's available because okay. it's 300 bucks. You get you can get a corporate compliance manual, this HIPAA manual that we've worked really hard on and I'm very proud of. And it's kind of a hobby. We mm-hmm. it's just a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, as is OSHA. So OSHA is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and every Every workplace has to guarantee a safe workplace. Sure. But if you're in a medical office, 
you have, and you have radiation equipment and you have sharps. oxygen, sharps, um, vomit on the floor, blood. Sure, always. Yeah, all this hep, hepatite, uh, hep B testing. So we also wrote a manual that's another 100 and maybe it's 80 pages. Um, um, that's separate just for OSHA to kind of walk a doctor's office. It's, very, it's got forms you fill out yourself. Uh-huh. Um, although a lot of those sharp, most states have a mandatory sharp company you have to use. Oh. Um, and they, they offer this kind of training too. Okay. Um, ours is just a little bit more homegrown. Yeah. But, uh, Oh, okay. Jerry's telling me that we had to go. Th- Jerry did. I didn't. Sorry. Jerry did great work. Mm-hmm. OSHA, um, OSHA for all doctor's offices. And I don't think any doctor's office really knows this unless they have a lawyer on retainer or they're large enough to have a, re- a lawyer on site. Mm-hmm. You have to go through and amend all your OSHA policies and procedures now for COVID. Mm-hmm. So Jerry did that for us, for our clients. Oh, we have, wow. I don't know, a couple hundred clients that operate with our OSHA policies. So you mm-hmm. give them a document or a, you know, 120 pages worth of documents. Yes. Um, and what do they do with that? They exactly. just read it and know it or just have it on hand? They have or? it on hand. So they, if they get audited, which lots of doctors get audited because you've got a lot of employees that can do stupid things, um, you've, you're covered. And right. prior to us writing this, um, nobody had anything really. Yeah. So there, this, this is, uh, nothing existed. So I'm so proud of Chris for helping us tackle this cause it was a behemoth of a project. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, if people want to know more about that too, we also have a webinar okay. on that, which kind of walks like a doctor or a practice administrator through what are the federal laws? Why do you care? What can you do about it? Um, like just a free 90 minute webinar. Cool. Really That's dry, awesome. really yeah. dry when for the MDs that want to go become JDs. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, they exist. Um, yeah, definitely send me any links that you want me to include in the show notes um, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, uh, promote them up front on the intro to the show. Um, all right. Kind of last question. Um, what do you think about uh, how to incorporate everything we've just talked about in more into medical training, whether it be the pre-med or medical school world or residency or post-residency. Um, how do we, how do we spread the word and get this whole industry, I guess, uh, doing a better job with all the things that we talked about? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And thank you for the opportunity today. I mean, nobody's ever asked me before. Um, and obviously I have a ton of opinions. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I think what you're doing is amazing. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, I, I don't know. I mean, you're at Rocky Vista. I don't think there's much we can do with the traditional four year medical degree. I don't think there's a lot of room, uh, to, to cram some business, um, education into that. Uh, for sure, residency, maybe on your rotations, you could ask a lot of questions about who does your billing, what software do you use? Um, what do you think about credentialing? I mean, you could use some of these buzzwords and just talk to practicing physicians, especially those in private practice, not those hospital employed. They're shielded from this, but ones that are in private practice, like Dr. Stathos, yeah. um, they're going to be a wealth of information and examples, and they are weathering the storm of all of this. And apparently, if they're still open, successfully. So they would be great, yeah. great minds to pick. Um, yeah, he's been running a private practice for like 30 years now, huh? Yeah, and I yeah. think there are programs, like dual programs, 
dual MBAs, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know if I'd do a dual JD, but I would say that like you mm-hmm. watch podcasts or listen to podcasts, um, watch YouTube videos. I mean, see what resources are out there. Chris Verani also took the coding class. Be a coder. Our coding class is 60 hours. Mm-hmm. That's uh, over five months. I mean, for you, it's nothing. Right. 60 hours of training is nothing. <laughs> sure. The ICD-10 coding is nine hours. You know, do that so that you're not beholden to somebody who has the word biller or coder on their resume. Mm-hmm. And you can always verify that, yeah. they, that they know what they're talking about. Sure, yeah. Doctors like to have background knowledge in the stuff that they're talking about. But I think a lot of them, them meaning uh, I guess myself included, like to just punt this idea uh, of the business of medicine because it's uncomfortable and we don't know a lot about it. And uh, it'd be nice to just have somebody else do it for us. Well, that's you true. Know, but yeah. vet that person. Sure. Vet that person. And even if you're hospital employed, know what your work RVU is. Mm-hmm. Know what their top dollar RVU is coming in. You know what I mean? Like, get some detailed reports. Mm-hmm. You know, demand better for yourself. I will close on the fact that, and I cannot cite this, but I've said it. I'll cite myself. I've said this for 20 years because mm-hmm. I heard it somewhere and I believe it. Uh, 80% of the healthcare dollar is directed by physicians. And yet you you net less than 10% of the revenue in the system. Mm-hmm. So nobody can write themselves a prescription. Nobody can admit themselves to the hospital. Nobody can order themselves an MRI. You direct all of that. And there are billion-dollar industries for pharmaceuticals dependent on you for imaging orders dependent on you. Mm-hmm. The hospitals are dependent on you for all their revenue. Freaking own it. Yeah. I like it. All right. I'm not going to argue with you. I hope I didn't dis- uh, discourage you. No, this was, <laughs> this was great. I, I, like I said, love having a little bit of background knowledge in something to make me realize I want to learn more about it. Great. Thanks. All right. Thanks a lot. to Marsha and Jerry, her, uh, her teammate there, um, who was, uh, sitting in with us and, uh, uh, adding to the conversation, uh, semi-silently on the side there. Um, but yeah, what a great, fantastic guest she was and so knowledgeable about her world that she lives in and, and how it connects to primary care or really any medical specialty. And, and, uh, we're lucky to have her on the show. So, uh, if you have any more questions for her, reach out to her, reach out to me. I can pass them along the primary care podcast at gmail.com. The Instagram is at primary care podcast. Good luck to all the people going through the match right now. Um, it's a stressful time, but uh, as uh, the great Dr. Emder told me um, when we recorded an episode recently, it'll all work out. So let's remember that and think good thoughts towards the future and the past. Much love. Peace, everybody. Just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. 
nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival many died though friends were formed to fight mutual rivals man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives boom they were civilized went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne built empires and the stories well known history ticks along like a metronome and then i came to be Walk, talk, and throw stuff. All grown up, I got a job now and showing up. I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned. My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time. And then I met you, lovely and smooth. You quickly removed my modern man's blues. I wanna celebrate every breath that I take. Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait. So, baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul. And forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? younger i met god and i hugged her she said hey baby instead of getting lost within how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin stop begin let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road going inch by inch don't sprint take it slow protect your soul travel long and far but make sure to come home because the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress this life is crazy but it's the goddamn best when life gets complex don't think just do it first it was simpler when the uterus was so baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold of your body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know baby let me grab a hold body mind and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know the uterus was my universe the uterus was my universe All conversation and information exchange contained in this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment. And no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.